Hi, welcome to the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, where we meet leading investors and commentators and educate ourselves about the world of investing and the world. Our mission is to remove some of the mystique around investing and improve our understanding of what makes a successful investment or indeed an unsuccessful one. Our goal is to inform, educate and entertain. We hope you enjoy this and every episode. Behind the balance sheet and affiliates and podcast guests may own shares or have an economic interest in securities discussed in this podcast, which is aired for your education and entertainment only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice or relied upon for investment decisions. Always do your own research. This podcast is sponsored by Stream by OfficeSense. I'm still getting used to the platform, but so far I'm impressed with how easy it is to use. Before Stream, when I was at the hedge funds, tapping into expert perspectives was time-consuming and costly. Identifying experts, coordinating schedules, preparing questions, running the interview, and transcribing notes. All this could take hours, but not even being sure of the quality I would receive. With Stream, there's a library of over 20,000 expert calls and transcripts. No time spent organizing, immediate and unlimited access, no hassle. For institutional analysts, this is a game changer. I like it because first, the platform intuitively understands what I'm looking for. Stocks are tagged, so you can get qualitative insights directly, not just from company executives and competitors, but also from suppliers and customers. Second, the calls so far have been high quality, qualified experts and good questions from real analysts. Third, its library is growing quickly with dozens of new transcripts added every day. I was surprised at the selections for the first stock I picked, which is just a mid cap. Stream by OfficeSense looks like a great addition to any analytical toolkit. Visit streamrg.com forward slash btbs for more details. This podcast is intended to educate and entertain, but we also have a more serious purpose. We support the Financial Times financial literacy charity. Check it out on ft.com forward slash F-L-I-C. It's the most disadvantaged in society who get taken in by financial scams, by payday loans, and similar artful devices designed to part people from their money. We can change this. It's a straightforward task of education. This is a great cause, and I urge you please to support it. Tian Yang is a fascinating guest. He explains why ChatGPT may be useful in solving accounting problems, but it produces gibberish when asked about investing. We talk about his work on the commodity supercycle, looking at rubber, whaling, and fur. He explains how he applies quantitative techniques to the capital cycle framework, which was championed, of course, by Marathon Asset Management and featured by Edward Chancellor. Tian explains how his work encompasses three different timeframes the long term for fundamentals, the six to 12 month business cycle, and the shorter term trades. Tian's unusual for a macro analyst in that he understands the fundamentals, but also what he calls playing the game, the tactical business of quarterly earnings and similar. We discuss the new environment, which he calls the age of scarcity. Investors need to understand the implications of the end of the age of abundance, which rested on the availability of cheap labor, cheap commodities, and cheap money. All of this is changing, which means different equity allocations are necessary. 
His firm, Variant Perception, champions the combination of man and machine as outperforming man alone or machine alone. Tian talks about young people born after 1990 being more in tune with data science. Look, we covered a lot of ground in this discussion. I would recommend listening at normal speed. Don't speed it up. I hope you enjoy it. So, Tian, welcome to the podcast. It's really pleased to have you here. I um, normally ask people, first of all, did you always want to be what you ended up as? But you've ended up as chief executive of a research boutique, but really you're an economist and an analyst. Was that always what you wanted to do? Um, kind of, I guess. I think when I got to university, so I, I read economics at Cambridge, and I think when I first got there, my plan was to be a, uh, a economics professor. I was interested in development. At least that's what my personal statement I said at the time. And I think... Um, Throughout the course of time at university, the banks and all the hedge funds, they come and they recruit. They have all these, you know, trading games, M&A games, and um, ended up winning a few of those games actually when I was in first and second year. So that kind of pulled me into the system. And obviously over time, you, you know, you realize finance is a, you know, a very interesting industry. It's kind of, a, you know, the, the returns accumulate over time, right? Everything you learn compounds on each other and you just learn more and more. Sure. And your experience actually adds up. You never stop learning. So I think ultimately that's probably what kept me in. But it wasn't quite the plan at the start, but, you know, close enough. And you, you were runner-up in that competition. What Keynes would advise if he were alive today? I mean, what did you advise? I mean, the, the, I mean that was 2009. It was quite a difficult time to be giving advice, right? Yeah, I mean, you've done your homework going through my LinkedIn that I forgot to, I forgot it's still on there. But um, yeah, um, gosh, let me think. I oh. think it was a slight cop-out answer because I remember quoting Kane saying, you know, when the facts change, I change my mind. And I felt like at the time, naive and, you know, as I was back then, that, you know, everyone was so dogmatic in pursuing policy. And that was important to acknowledge kind of, you know, in the real world, the economy is a mechanical system. So I remember thinking that it's important to take elements of Keynes, uh, you know, what Milton Friedman said, what a lot of other people said. So I can't remember exactly, but I think it was more targeted. Fiscal was important, but you had to acknowledge that you had to shut it off. You can't just, effectively, sure. you can't do QE forever. And obviously, we've done QE forever. So. Yeah, well, we'll, and, get, and, yeah. <laughs> we'll, get on to, we'll get on to that. But you did this wonderful piece that I really loved about the commodity super cycle, which I think was something you were pushing maybe 12 or 18, 18 months ago. And I really loved this because you, you talked about lessons from history, looking at whaling, rubber, and fur. And rubber was a, a very familiar story to me because I spent a lot of time researching the plantation sector and visiting Malaysia. And I also, at one point, visited Manas, not for work, but for pleasure. And Manaus was the center of the rubber production in the early 1900s and has the most magnificent opera house, mm. which is you know, <laughs> better than Milan. But the, what I thought was interesting about rubber is rubber actually coexisted with synthetic rubber because in the early part of the, the, the 20th century, tire demand obviously was exploding. The British stole rubber seeds from Brazil and planted the rubber in Malaysia, which is why Malaysia has got such a big plantation sector. But when um, Japan occupied most of Asia in World War II, the Americans funded the development of, of synthetic rubber. And then, of course, when you had the oil price supply shocks in the 1970s, synthetic rubber became more expensive. So it's a very, very complicated cycle, and you, you explained it very, very well. But you also talked about whaling and fur. What did you learn from studying all these? And can you, can you share some of the thoughts? 
Um, yeah, so, so obviously there are things that are specific to each sector, but if you do take a step back, I think it broadly fits in this idea of you know, competition and the waves of competition from you know, when too much capital gets invested and then, you know, there's too much production, which then deters future profitability. And then when profitability goes down, competition falls, which obviously enables more kind of profits in the future. So I think it's kind of part of that cycle, but you have a structural element on top. And I think the key point is when you're analyzing a lot of these base commodity sectors, it's important to bear in mind that from a secular point of view, demand and supply is inelastic, right? That's kind of the key point. So just like we're seeing with the commodity super cycle with energy right now, at a base fundamental level from civilization's point of view, you need these things, right? It's inelastic. You know, you could do without Netflix, for example, but, you know, we're going to need energy to heat our homes, right? This is the whole European um, kind of panic last year. So I think that that's kind of the key point that for a lot of these fundamental things, when there isn't an obvious replacement, the demand is inelastic. And therefore, when supply gets disrupted, you end up with very extreme prolonged cycles. And it's really those cycles that then drive um, technological innovation. But even then, there tends to be a lot of hyperbole about how industries commodity industries die, right? Everyone likes to cite all the examples, you know, whaling or salt or these things that at one time, you know, ice, at one time, these things are super valuable. And now obviously, they're very cheap. But I think people underappreciate just the path in how you get there. There tends to be a, a, this is the starting point, this is the end. So let's just factor in, this is how we end up. But in practice, for a lot of these industries, the more kind of linked to base level demand they are, the longer and harder it is for these things to be displaced. So we just gave a lot of examples where even though you think of them as suddenly going extinct, it takes a while, right? And usually it's because alternative uses are found or often they can coexist. So rubber is like the particularly interesting one because even today you still have kind of both, right? Both synthetic and, and natural rubber uh, maintaining market share. Similarly for fur, in theory, we have synthetic furs. Why do you even need to, you know, go yeah, like real animal? You know? And so that, that's still the case. And even for whaling, you stop using it for, for oil, but, you know, people still eat it and, and there's all these other elements. And so I think it's just more understanding that in that long period of transition, the producers will also try to expand their markets. The technology will enable alternative uses. And for something like fossil fuels in particular, and that was the point we were trying to make, something as base level as fossil fuels, it's such an efficient use of energy, right? And we obviously, we're aware of the problems of coal and oil, but it's such an efficient use of energy from a physics point of view, just, you know, such just the energy density that it's going to be very hard to replace. And I think, you know, we, we wrote that piece in response to what we felt like was um, like the very one-sided view at the time, which was, oh yeah, all these things are going away. Let's just invest for the future. I remember there was a tweet by a, uh, obviously a very famous uh, innovation investor at the time about whaling oil. And I remember that kind of set me off because having studied the history of whaling oil, that's actually factually wrong. Like oil is not like whaling oil. And that was kind of what motivated it originally. So um, so yeah, I think the, the general takeaway is really to think about how much energy, energy density there is yeah. and how long the transition is going to take. And can you see the alternative uses? And typically, you need like a major catalyst event to really accelerate the technological disruption. You know, like you say, it has to be really extreme, right? It's like war, world war, these kind of things. So, If you enjoy this podcast, you're bound to enjoy our free newsletter on Substack. It's a weekly email on interesting investing topics. Visit BehindTheBalanceSheet.com and hit the sign up button. While you're there, you might want to check out our brilliant online investor training school. 
hundreds of students have taken our flagship Analyst Academy course, which teaches you everything you need to become a serious equity investor. And if you're a professional investor, we run a forensic accounting course for institutional clients, and soon a cohort-based course for serious amateurs. Email us at info at behindthebalancesheet.com. You, you referred to the capital cycle and the investment in supply and all that, and I know that's a big part of how you look at the, how you look at the world. What, what got you interested in the capital cycle framework? And can you talk a little bit about how you've adapted the original writings of marathon asset management? And particularly, I would like to talk about how you quantify it because you use three lenses, capex to assets, depreciation to assets and ROIC. But let's start by talking about how did you get into all this? Is it, do you think it's just central to everything that are in a lot of sectors? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's central to every sector. It's it's the fundamental way the world works. So I think, you know, our challenge when we're investing in commodity investment ideas has been, I think in finance, there's a lot of theories and frameworks where it's not clear it's axiomatically true. So, right. So like, you know, in math, you have to have an axiom before you can derive proofs. And, you know, a lot of things, you know, say like technical analysis, right? Every, you know, the assumption is everything's in the price, therefore look at the chart. But it's not fundamentally axiomatically true. And I think there's very few things we found about the real world that's axiomatically true. And I think uh, the capital cycle and the business cycle are basically a few of the you know, core things you can rely on. So when you think about investment, at least w- the way we think about it is there's basically two concepts, right? One is the fundamentals, the axioms, and the second is really playing the game. And I think there's a lot of energy and time spent on playing the game, right? That's where all the trading systems are. That's where all the flows and positioning and crowding and do do valuations mean revert. Let's forecast where the earnings going to be. To us, a lot of that is kind of um, earnings for next quarter, right? That's basically playing the game. But on the fundamental side, the the capital cycle is such an intuitive and core way that capitalism works, right? The, The basic idea is just competition. When an industry has too much money going into it, then people overinvest to chase market share, but that obviously crushes future profits. And so when future profits go down, the return on invested capital goes down, so the money has to go somewhere else in search of profits. And I think, you know, that's basically the most fundamental way in which things work. And, um, you know, we're big fans of the of marathon asset management, of, obviously of you know, the partners have since subsequently set up other shops. I saw you had obviously Jeremy Hoskin on your podcast before. And um, yeah, and so what inspired us was... Um, so there was the Capital Returns book by Air Chancellor a, a few years back that, um, you know, really collected together a lot of the insights. And essentially, that was what motivated us to really try and quantify what's going on. And so essentially, what you're trying to do is take a lot of balance sheet metrics to proxy for capital flows and, and competition. It's an interesting idea because Marathon themselves haven't done that, to my knowledge. And Jeremy uh, Hosking and Cole, I don't think, have tried to quantitatively apply the the theory. They they do it by observation, and obviously you can see the in the, you know companies talking about closing down plant. Then mm. they start to get interested. But this is this is I think quite new and quite innovative what you've done. So let let us maybe talk about it. You you look at capex and R and D to assets. This is just a way, a proxy of understanding the, the increase in capital expenditure, the increase in supply? Uh, yeah, so so because the capital cycle is works over a, a very long-term cycle, right? So, you know, we're saying on average, say, it takes three years to really have an impact. So, you know, a lot of the key elements, the balance sheet, 
we're looking at is, um, you know, as you mentioned, it's CapEx, R&D, assets, depreciation, amortization, and so forth. But it's basically various proxies for essentially is the asset base growing or shrinking, which ultimately reflects if the company is investing, right? Whether it's new money being raised or whether it's, you know, um, retained earnings being reinvested back in. It's a very, very simple way to proxy for overall is the asset base shrinking or growing. And then how much maintenance do you have to do to maintain the asset base? And, you know, that's the, probably the most intuitive definition of the capital cycle most people are aware of, right? And so, you know, what we try and do is aggregate up the dollar value for lots of industries um, where the competitive dynamics are aligned. You know, so obviously, if you, you know, if you take all the tobacco companies and lump them together and look at it in aggregate, that gives you a fairly good sense of kind of future profitability. The challenge when you, when you look at the capital cycle initially is how do you filter out the losers or the value traps and how do you keep in the secular winners, right? So a lot of classic examples say like the semiconductors industry. So if you'd only looked at money going into it, you would have said it was capital abundant. But mm. obviously, as a we're in a major secular shift. Like we should be plowing money into this, right? Because there's just been very high marginal returns. Like TSMC, like locks in that, right? They lock in their rate of return with their customers before they even do the deal. So I think what we found is that once you have the intuitive aspects of asset based depreciation and so forth, what you want is a marginal ROIC component. Obviously, ROIC defined properly. Are you effectively operating RIC, right? You know, get rid of some of the cash adjustments and so forth. But the, the key point is, if you have a marginal RIC component, it allows you to be sensitive to when that shrinking asset base is suddenly starting to generate higher returns, right, at the first moment. And that's a way to at least help you with a, uh, a little bit with the timing for a lot of these long-term, potentially secular winners or losers, right? Like shipping is a great example, right? Like people absolutely piled into the sector you know, in, in like 15, 16 um, at the time, because from a asset base or, you know, overinvestment on the investment point of view, it was looking like, you know, it was way overinvested and people were exiting. But the point was actors act very irrationally in the industry. You have a lot of families who own ships. Obviously, there's, in terms of shipbuilding, a lot of times it's, uh, you know, national, effectively SOEs, right? So they have to maintain jobs. So by having that marginal ROIC component, you basically stay out until 2020, until profitability, the first sign it turns. And then all that underlying kind of, you know, capital cycle potential starts to be realized and the momentum picks back up. So I think that's probably the slight extra edge you get from quantifying stuff, right? You know, the way we think about the world is, is this idea of, you know, man plus machine can be man or machine alone. So we're just essentially trying to use a lot of the quantitative techniques just to speed up our filtering down. So our model will tell us to not even spend time on, say, shipping or anything related to it until there's a marginal shift. Instead, that's of very, going too that's early. very interesting. That's very clever because, uh, as you point out, the I mean, shipping is a good example of an industry where there's a lot of capital outside the quoted sector. So you can look at all, you can look at the quoted sector and you can see a, a lot of things happening, but you can't actually see what's happening in the Greek shipping companies. Yeah. And the, uh, so that's a very clever clever way of doing it. Do you ever get caught out, though? I mean, do you ever get, like, false signals where the returns start to improve and then fade away again? I suppose that must happen, but... Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think this comes back to time horizons. So, so that's why when we try and think about investing, we explicitly target three time horizons and try to marry them together. So the capital cycle very much fits in what we call the structural bucket. Right, so that's basically two to three year plus outlook. So that's kind of the the, the long term anchor, and then on the six to twelve months basis, you have the business cycle, right? So this is a lot more leading economic indicators, you know, growth, inflation, liquidity, and so forth. So you kind of layer that on top, 
And then you have the more tactical, which is kind of you know the, the trading signals, valuations, uh, you know positioning, and these kind of shorter term things that people tend to trade mean reversion around. And so if you marry the three together, it does a slightly better job of explaining when one model is not working. So the classic example is capital cycle is it basically doesn't even change month to month, right? Or even quarter to quarter a lot of times. So obviously there's times when it's going in your direction, times when it isn't. Um, and a lot of times the explanation is linked to the business cycle or to the liquidity cycle right, in terms of asset price shift. So I think marrying the two is a bit more helpful. But in general, though, when we've run the backtest all the way back to like, you know, the late 90s, like the alpha generation in terms of long short for capital cycle is insanely robust. When you think the only input is balance sheet, it basically doesn't change, right? The alpha generation is super consistent. Now, obviously, the drawdowns are quite can be quite brutal, mm. right? Because obviously, there's no risk management if you just run it. But it's amazingly consistent in terms of alpha. And, and what you notice is, basically, as long as the business cycle doesn't blow up, i.e. there's no recession, it basically just works. Like on a rolling three-year basis, you're basically extracting alpha. But when there's a recession, it basically completely goes haywire. I, you lose a lot of money. And I think it's, again, very intuitive because if your capital scarce industry go into recession, you actually just go bankrupt, right? You don't even survive. You take a zero on the equity, and then some hedge fund who owns a senior debt comes in and takes equity. They write it up on the next turn, and you don't realize the you know that that future profit. So I think the behavior is is pretty good as well when you backtest. It's fascinating, actually. I mean, the longer term, the structural, the two three year stuff is obviously where I tended to to focus, and then looking at the six to twelve month. Outlook just to make sure you're getting your timing right. Can you talk a little bit about what sort of leading indicators you use and and how do you, how do you apply them? Uh, yeah. So again, going back to a bit what we discussed earlier in terms of this idea of axioms, right? What is fundamentally true? And I think the the challenge with macro, at least our challenge with macro, has been again, there's very few things that's fundamentally true, right? Like there's no one model that's going to give you the right coefficient to predict the point in time estimate for GDP or these things. The only thing we think is fundamentally true in how the economy operates is the sequencing. So certain things have to happen before other things, and it's the sequencing you rely on. And that's basically what leading indicators are about. So very intuitive examples are things like, you know, building permits have to have a turning point before the construction activity, right? Just like, and then it's only when you construct the house can you have changes in, say, you know, white goods or durable goods, right? You know, people move into the home and then they buy stuff. So in terms of the leading lags, building permits will give you much more signal of where the future kind of things like durable goods, like construction is going. Similarly, in the labor market, if you only look at temp workers, right, they should give you a much better sense of what's actually going on at the margin versus the, the unemployment number, right, which is very, very lagging. Like unemployment is normally at the lowest point, you know, during the recession, right, just because companies take a long time before they decide to fire workers. So I think it's about applying that leading lagging concept to kind of every aspect of the economy, thinking about what is truly sequentially leading. And then it's essentially saying, okay, now I've seen the leading indicator turn, the coincident growth data hasn't quite moved, but we know it's going to move. And it essentially shrinks down the window in which that coincident growth series can move. But obviously it's not exact science because you know the, the, the transmission is different every time, but at least I think it's something that's fundamentally true in how the world operates and therefore we can rely on it. And it gives you some confidence and narrows down your timing window. No, absolutely. And, uh, and it, seemed, it always seemed bizarre to me that people didn't spend more time on things like the building. I mean, the building permit is a fantastic example. And you would very, you know, I, I remember I used to look at this, but 
I used to look at it at the raw data because the the sell side didn't spend too much time worrying about it. And I thought, well, hang on a second, here I'm being, you know, I'm there's somebody telling me what my roadmap should be, and that's what I want to worry about. I mean, do you understand why these things haven't been as popular, perhaps, with the bulk of the sell side? I mean, is there any reason that you've focused in on this when others haven't spent as much time? Um. Well, I wouldn't say we're the only ones, but for no, sure, no. I, I hear you that it's it's a minority. I think, was well, I think it's like originally it was like Jeffrey Moore and like you know the conference board. You know they've been looking at this stuff for a while. Um, I think the problem has been because the lead times are somewhat variable, and everyone, and especially if you're sell side, you know, your incentives are to probably live in the short term. A lot of times, it might not be happening immediately, and sometimes you know it'll just look look like it's not working, right? Basically, into every recession, there's always a this time is different. The yield curve is no longer predictive, right? You can go back and look at reports every single time where into before 2008, before 2001, you know, right now everyone's like, oh, the yield curve doesn't matter. Here's why, you know, leading the case don't work. So I think that's probably an element of that where the lead times take so long, people kind of, you know, lose confidence in it, for example. And the other thing I would say is people probably don't treat it as holistic a framework. There's a lot of elements of, and obviously we're all subject to this, right? The bias is you have a view, you find data to justify it. So, you know, maybe people pick and choose. They're like, okay, I'm bearish or bullish. The ISM number just came out. That fits my narrative. Therefore, I'm going to talk about it because I have to talk about it. So I think just chopping out the leading data is, um, I haven't seen that many sales sites do that. But also you got to realize the data is heavily revised. So maybe you like the theory and you start to using it. But in practice, you don't realize the data goes through multiple, multiple revisions. Yeah. And in fact, the, the real revision, quote unquote, real revision comes like a year later, right? When they do like annual revisits or, you know, whenever. So how do you cope with that then? I mean, that must really upset your process. You... Well, we, we track the first release. So we track all the different revisions of the data. So that's why, you know, we're recording this right after non-farm payrolls, right? Where I'm like, suddenly everyone's the narrative is, oh, the lay market is great. But non-farm payrolls is like one of the worst series for revisions. People don't realize it gets revised up to 10 times mm. afterwards. And you can look at the revision patterns before in, in every historical recession, where for the first month or two afterwards, the pattern is often it gets revised up, so i.e. revised even more positive or, or normal, and then a year later it gets revised back down. And do you know why that is? Why that would be? I mean, um, so I think for for series like employment, one is it's based on surveys, so there's a lot of statistical techniques that go into estimating the whole number. And, you know, a lot of time the surveys come in, it's lagging. And also you got to realize the people who compile statistics are just, you know, they're trying to do their job, right? They're not, it, this wasn't designed to help you time the market. So maybe it's like two years later when the recession's consensus, the MBR says it's consensus. You notice in the data, suddenly they drop it by a million, right? The employment number is like, oh, my historical data doesn't quite fit the narrative anymore. So, you know, there's so many assumptions that go into these models. And so it's very sensitive to just small parameter changes. Right, because the employment numbers I say like today, it's 150 million, right? Right, that's the magnitude. And we're worrying about like a 200K change as, as you know, the market's worried 200K suddenly yeah. is like a big deal. So, you know, I think these are all the elements that probably go into why, you know, you might think something's leading and then the, the first release comes out, you're like, oh, wait, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to react to this and it doesn't work for you. But you don't realize... You know, that's these revisions. No, and of course, as you said, you've got to play the game because if everybody else is looking at that yeah. number, then you've got to you've got to worry about it, even though you know it, even though you know it's wrong. It's funny, isn't it? Because the United States has got a data set that is far far superior to any anywhere else in the world, but even its data set isn't that good concurrently. Yeah, I mean, I mean the data is doing what it's supposed to be doing. I think as investors, you probably have to realize 
they, you know, the, the statistics, people didn't come up with this to specifically help you invest in time in the market, right? They're trying to, there's lots of uses for the data. It's yeah. doing what it's supposed to be doing. Just like the GDP now numbers, right? Like, again, this feels a bit like when it suits people's narrative, they bullish or bear, they point at the data. But the data has always behaved like this. It's just, it's just who's bothered to read the methodology and like look at how it behaves, right? That, that feels more like what the issue seems to be. And of course, that doesn't make for a very sexy research note, looking yeah. at the methodology. You talked a bit earlier about sequencing, and I think that's very, very interesting because you've written quite a lot about bear market bottoms. And, you know, we had Russell Napier on, on the podcast with Jeremy Hoskin when we did that capital cycle. We talked about financial repression, but he also wrote that book, Anatomy of, of the Bottom, you were talking about funds going out of business and the comeback of fallen angel investors like value investors today. I mean, David Einhorn obviously is up 36% mm. and he's been coming to London to raise capital. But what I think is quite funny is that Kathy Wood is still getting inflows in spite of, I mean, horrendous performance. You know, it's conceivable that as we're talking, we're talking in early February 2023, I mean, it is conceivable we've ended the bear market and both David and Kathy are going to make money from here. But that seems a very implausible scenario. But what I think is very difficult about today is history doesn't seem to be very relevant because we're at a very odd juncture in history. The circumstances today are very different from the way they've been in the last 40 years. And, and you know, you can look at periods like post-World War II in terms of government debt or the 1970s in terms of inflation and energy. But how do you think about this? Because you're very historically data precedent driven. How do you think about we're in a, a new paradigm or a new mode? How do you how do you work out what's going to happen? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a big question. Uh, well, first of all, shout out to Russell Napier. I think he's also got this um, series of libraries, the library mistakes that I've actually visited. So you know that that also tells you a bit about history, right? And you can see in real time all the kind of errors people make. But um, yeah, so. I think, it, first of all, I don't know if you read our um, note on the, what we call the age of scarcity. So that kind of sets out our kind of five to 10 year view right now, where at heart, we're going from, you know, decades of cheap money, cheap labor, cheap commodities, and all three are basically now going to be in reverse for the next decade, right? So you're going to have more expensive commodities, more expensive labor, and more expensive financing. So I think that's a fundamental regime shift in the investing environment. So all these assumptions we're going to mean revert back to whatever that average or median is over the past 10 years. Like we don't think that's going to happen, right? So first of all, that's the kind of very structural overlay. Okay, so let's stop there. Okay. What, what, what does that mean? I mean, I, I completely get what you're saying. Yeah. So we're not going to have, we've had 40 years of falling rates and that's stopped. So that's a bit, I mean, that's been the thing for me. And we've had cheap labor. So what, how does that affect the investing landscape? So, well, this is linked a little bit to like my understanding of Russell Napier's view on some, some things as well, right? Where at heart, it means your equilibrium level of rates is going to be higher for where bond yields are going to be. Your equilibrium level where inflation is going to be is going to be higher. Um, you know, sector leadership is going to be different. You know, we've been very fortunate to live in a decade where tech startups, consumer tech startups raise financing, give you free stuff, right? Using cheap capital, right? A lot of these business models are probably going away. It's not going to be as sustainable. It's going to be harder to finance innovation. You saw Facebook stock tank and then they said, okay, we're going to stop the metaverse stuff and it rallies, right? So I think it just, it just puts up, putting up to your point, putting up the cost of capital is one piece. 
also your input costs are going higher, right? Because of the commodity super cycle, that's where the capital cycle comes back. If we're underinvested in the base needs of society for so long, like unless we suddenly get all these, you know, nuclear fusion breakthroughs, whatever, or the, you know, battery tech breakthroughs, it's going to take a while. And so input costs are going higher. Obviously, you know, more militant labor, right? You see strikes picking up a lot of these. And obviously, you know, we, we live in here in the UK, right? It's like every week. Right, you know, there's gonna be a strike, and so you know, these are very fundamental shifts, right? Like you have a shift in um, monetary and fiscal policy coordination, right? Like it's only in the age of abundance that you can get independent central banks, right? In the age of scarcity, central banks gonna to listen to the the big daddy, right? Which the government tells you what to do. Yeah, and so the government's gonna tell us all. Yeah, they're gonna tell us all what to do. But what this means then is that margins are gonna go down in the long term. Margins structurally are all time high. Returns structurally are an all time high. So they they've got to decline, right? Well, again, how far away you're from the base layer of commodity needs will determine that, right? Like, pricing power now is going to be, well, guess what? If I'm a, you know, if I'm any of the energy guys, right? Obviously, unless the government specifically tax, you know, windfall tax me or whatever, like, people are going to pay what I ask, right? But yeah, I'm not going to pay Netflix $4.99 to renew my subscription. Maybe they got off me $1.99, I still won't do it, right? Like, this is the difference. We've got to pay our bills. We've got to, you know, buy our food, right? We're going to, you know, fertilize us, right? There's a shortage. We've got to pay for that. So I think it's more, there's a shift in where the pricing power is going to be and what. And clearly, when financing needs go down, you actually have to live off your positive cash flow, right? To reinvest. So therefore, margins will actually matter again. Whereas obviously, when you can raise free money, it's all about market share and you don't need, um, you don't need to actually even generate your own cash flow or you just you know raise money to grow so yeah i think that that's like a very fundamental shift in where the market leadership is going to be but also i think it affects the the policy regime right so therefore you know obviously you mentioned financial repression these kind of things right you know something i like i half jokingly talk about is um it's kind of the chinification of policy where the west just keeps adopting china china's policy but a few years later right even like china locked down first and we for some reason just locked down here before f- switching well, in China, like credit is very state driven, right? At, you know, s- policy banks drive it. And that's obviously what we're seeing a lot more uh, in the West, right? Especially in Europe, right? When the government backstops and gives credit guarantees for loans, that's the government allocating credit, right? And it distorts uh, private sector lending incentives. So a lot of these things have been happening already. And that's usually what you see in a more kind of, um, yeah, in a regime where I don't want to say quite say it was stagflationary, right? Because stagflationary, you need a recession while re- inflation is high and we're not quite there. But that's basically the trend, right? Higher levels of inflation are changing what kind of business model is going to do well in the next decade. Yeah, and obviously it's probably good for gold. It's probably bad for nominal bonds. And if you're going to be in equities, you better be in the in the good in the equities with the pricing power. I mean, we've seen a lot of this, and in fact, we talked quite a lot on the on the podcast. One of the earlier podcasts I did, Pete Davis from Lansdowne was saying, "Well, you know, I just don't believe that Facebook and Google are going to be the leaders in the in the next." decade and that was in September of 2021 um so quite near the quite near mm. the peak and it was quite controversial at the time it's funny you, you you don't it's only when you look back and you you say well that was he, was he said something that was very right and very clear and quite obvious but people didn't listen and didn't didn't believe it but I think that's now the tech leadership it's not gone away I mean I think people do still believe in it because obviously we had this big rally in in January but I think a lot of people understand that tech isn't going to lead in this decade and it's much more likely to be energy. Are there any sort of second tier effects that, you, that you're looking at that, you know, other areas that we, we should be thinking about that are knock-ons from that? I mean, obviously, if you've got 
the leadership going away from tech. And tech's a big consumer of tech. So there's all the SaaS product, all the SaaS services that feed into that will suffer. But are there any other sort of um, second-tier effects that you're thinking about and you're studying? So I think, again, going back to not missing the secular shift and, and confusing with the cyclical, essentially what you've... What I, I, I mean, the one-line summary would be we've invested too much in software and not enough in hardware. Yeah. Right, so... But obviously, hardware is extremely unsexy. You know, I have friends who do hardware startups, right? And they just can't raise money. But guess what? If you want to do any of this electrification stuff, you might need a better battery charging technology, right? You might need a better wireless charging, whatever it is. So I think that's going to be the big shift. Like, we still need technology, right? This technology is secular, right? It's not like the Luddites, you know, there's all these, right? It is a secular thing, but there's big cycles on top. So I think there's going to be increasing focus on tech, hardware, manufacturing tech, and all these things. So I think it's just the format of it's going to shift. So it's more moving away from, as you say, purely two guys sat in a garage somewhere, you know, buy, you know, buy AWS, right, do a SaaS thing. And you're going to actually need some innovation in, you know, material science, you know, in, in energy and you know, oh, sure. all these things. Can you, can you talk a bit about real estate? Because you're constructive on real estate. And obviously, it's been very difficult with the rise in, in, in bond yields so far. I mean, my simple perspective in this is they aren't making Bond Street anymore. You know, there's only one Bond Street. And so if you've got the right asset, it's, it's going to be highly valuable in, in 20 years. And there's a very good inflation protection. But obviously, there's this yield compression component to it. What do you think about real estate? How do you look at it? Yeah, I mean, well, I would agree with you. Again, going back to the time horizon issue, right? Clearly, on the structural point of view, yeah, it's going to be an inflation hedge, but it has to be in scarce supply, right? To, precisely to your point. It has to be, you know, location, location, location. So, yeah, I think that's fairly obvious. I think on a slightly more cyclical viewpoint, this is where we were only constructive on it in the sense of playing the game. So, basically, from I think for the US, where the demographic picture is slightly better, there is a need ultimately to build housing. So, like a very simple indicator you can look at is just housing starts versus the population or housing starts versus the stock of total homes available, right? So, basically, after the GFC crisis, this being at a much lower level versus history. So, today, there's a lot less empty homes that were previously. The housing stock is much, much older, right? You have a ton of homes built in the 50s and 60s. And... I think people tend to just only look at household formation versus housing starts without realizing a lot of buildings get demolished, right? You have to do maintenance. And so I think structurally, there is a need to build more homes in the US. That's kind of the secular story. However, home building businesses are basically just a pass-through business, right? They take whatever cost and pass through. But I think there are probably operating efficiencies to some of the better operators, right? If you can knock out a cheaper home and over time, you'll, you'll, you'll do better. So I think it's more they got so bombed out because of the rising rates that you were getting to the point where your pricing already discounting quite a strong recession and all the flow crowd indicators shows like, you know, everybody is basically sold out. So then you were like, okay, if, if you can find players that aren't too levered, they'll probably survive. You got to hold something. You can't just hold the basket energy names, right? We've got to find something else that's somewhere sure. aligned with the core view. So I think that's where uh, some of these names came in. So in Latin America as well, home build is potentially interesting, but it's, it's a question where you can take on the geopolitical risk. People have been going to the Latin America demographic trade for ages, right? And if, you know, I remember years ago looking at companies like Alcos Dorado's, McDonald's of, uh, of uh, Latin America, you're like, this is a no-brainer, right? Great demographics, all these things, and, you know, performance is terrible for years. So, but yeah, at heart, I think it's more structurally, either it's a real asset play, it holds inflation value, or fundamentally, there are certain regions of the world where demographics are a bit better, where you will need to build more homes. 
And ultimately, if there's financial repression, real rates are going to be negative. So it will make sense for people to go to get the mortgage to buy their homes. The mortgage will be given to you by the bank, which is backed by the government. So like that makes sense. And then people want it to go up. So I think that's probably more the secular point. But for sure, in the short term, it's a pass-through industry, right? So you've got to be a bit careful who's kind of you know the cowboy operators. And also, I think the, the other point is the companies that have bought land effectively. Mm-hmm. Because the... Um, David Einhorn was talking about, he's, uh, the, I think he's the chairman of Greenbrick. Oh, really? Uh, I see. And, okay. um, but he, he, they were making acquisitions during COVID. Yeah. And including acquisitions of distressed companies. So they've built up quite a big land bank in Texas. So, you know, he's very, well, obviously he's a big holder of it. So <laughs> he's yeah. obviously very bullish on it. I, um, it's quite an interesting start. The other thing that you've been talking about is sort of exiting the age of abundance and profits and cash flows are sexy again. Less so the dash for growth. But you you said you see more merger activity now as companies look to maintain margins by consolidating the supply chain. I wondered why you were talking about that. Do you think um, there's been too much horizontal mergers? I know, obviously, we both know Jonathan Tepper and he mm. wrote that great book with a with a colleague about the consolidation particularly in the United States do you think it's just gone too far uh well I don't think it's that's a viewpoint on whether it's gone too far I think the point was it's another confirmatory piece of anecdotal evidence you want to see for the age of scarcity thesis right which is when margin pressures become more persistent the historical observed pattern is that how do you preserve profit margins well, if you don't have as much pricing power as all these companies think they do, then one way is to consolidate um, the, the vertically. So I but think why you know, vertically rather than horizontally? Because obviously you, you essentially cut out the layers of profit margin from your suppliers, right, right. or the downstream. So you basically put it all together. So at aggregate level, it looks a little bit better. In theory, there's more bargaining power, right, when you when you consolidate as well. So that's generally what we observe. It's not. Again, in practice, it might not happen because sometimes you have to pay a premium and, you know, it's hard to kind of operate the assets as efficiently. But that's kind of the theory people go for. So I think this is more not an immediate story, but again, for the next five to 10 years, you should expect that to happen a lot more. So that's why if you're like an upstream, you know, tech hardware, all these things, you make something important to the world, you're more likely to also have that get out of jail clause where, you know, there'll be like a strategic acquirer that comes in as well, right? You can value it on those kind of things. I think that's, that's more the angle we're going for there. That's very, very interesting. One um, thing I, I want to ask was: you're the youngest person I've had on the on the podcast. I, I, I think that's <laughs> is, a good, is that good or bad thing? Like, <laughs> I, no, I think that's a good. I think that's a good thing because I think uh, you know cognitive diversity. But um, <laughs> I just just wondered if, if youth was an advantage, because I really believe, or I have believed over the, you know my investing lifetime that we're in cycles and that the experience of the past cycles really helped. And, you know, you make the mistakes the first time, you make the mistakes the second time, hopefully you don't make them the third time. You know, you, you, your exposure, your risk appetite gets diminished. But because we're in this kind of new environment where the old rules kind of get chucked out, I wondered if you thought that there was an advantage in being younger and that you, you weren't relying on your experience. You had to do everything from first principles. And that actually gave you a help. Hmm. Well, I think doing things from first principles for sure helps. But, you know, we're, we're like strong students of economic history, financial market history. We're very aware of the, is this Schwarzman or someone had the quote? There's no, there's no like 
what is it, no courageous and old investors or, yeah. or something. Like, no yeah. old and bold. Yeah, no yeah. old and, yeah, that's the one. No old and bold investors, right? So I think we're very aware of what we don't know. So that's why, you know, we spend so much time, you know, obviously we've mentioned m- multiple examples looking at economic history. But because we've, you know, this is like, you know, post-1990, right? People born after 1990 were probably more, you know, in line with some of the more leading edge of data science and some of those techniques. So the way I see it is we can have a nice niche where we take a lot of those insights from economic history, from interacting with very experienced investors, you know, like yourself, listening to your podcast, reading your book, plug, plug. And then, uh, and then trying to take some of the data science techniques and then trying to, you know, do something, you know, like with the capital cycle, right? I don't think we need to necessarily reinvent the wheel or come up with brand new insights and make the mistakes. But hopefully we can take a lot of those other insights and then try and quantify or apply some more leading edge techniques to it. And in a way, that's probably only been enabled in the past decade, right? I'm, I have to imagine even when I was initially growing up, you literally had to go to the library and physically get a book out, right, to read. That was in, this information was widely available. Um, so maybe that's what enables youth to be maybe a bit more effective this time around, where you don't have to make all the same mistakes. You, you can rapidly accumulate the information. I, I was explaining to somebody the other day, you know, I love doing these talks to universities. And I was at the, at the LSE actually a couple of weeks ago. But I was ta- talking to some, a youngster about, you know, getting in the, into the industry. And I was explaining that at one of the firms that I worked at, we had a library. And he, he sort of looked at me, well, why did you have a library? And I explained to him, so you might own, you, you might be following a company that makes a takeover of another company. And, you know, there might not be an analyst following that stock. So we used to have the accounts, the physical accounts of every company quoted in the London Stock Exchange. So that if that happened, you could just go to the library and pick out the accounts because there wasn't an internet that you could access. And, uh, you know, the, 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 sort of the wheels were going round. I could see him thinking about this. And <laughs> couldn't conceive of the idea that the world wasn't on your, on your desk, on your screen. And, of course, there's the, been a, a marvellous, marvellous change. And, um, but listen, thank you so much for coming in and, and talking about your, your views. And I normally ask people when we finish um, to recommend a book. And you're a great reader, I think. So what books would you recommend to somebody who wants to follow your footsteps and become a strategist, economist? I'm not sure how to describe Variant Perception. You're quite an unusual firm, right? Well, yeah, I mean, we think of ourselves more like full stack investors, right? We're trying to, I mean, this is, I guess this is somewhat linked to your question as well, where in terms of career advice, I remember getting is, you know, essentially capitalism is only going to reward two things. You're either the very best at something or you have a unique mix. Now, it's pretty hard to be LeBron James and, you know, break the all-time scoring record, right? So it's usually easier to be unique and to unique means you say have 80% everything. So, you know, we do quant, we do bottom up, we do macro, you know, we try and look at how to trade fixed income, how to trade vol, but maybe just 80%. But if you just have, if you eventually broaden out enough to cover all of it, you have a somewhat unique mix and perspective and that can also be valuable and help with, you know, investment decisions really. So I think that's the, probably the, you know, how I would describe our firm, how I've tried to go about my, my path so far. And in a way, that's probably linked to the books I would recommend, right? When people ask me, usually the first book I always think about is um, The Volatility Machine by Michael Pettis, who I've actually met uh, before as well. I just think, at least for me personally, that was like the game changer. It was one of the first books I read that wasn't very academic in nature, that wasn't just very theoretical about this is fractional reserve banking or this is how technical analysis works. It was very practical in terms of how the real world 
works. You know, how do things propagate through balance sheets at a macro and micro level to drive asset prices? So Is thought, it Michael Pettis, the China expert? Yes, although he started off as a LATAM credit trader. Oh, did he? I didn't yeah, know that. No, well, I, yeah. I mean, I, I have met him, and he, I mean, he's amazing on China. He's, yeah, you know, really, he's amazing on lots of things. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So that was like something that really, really um, was like a, a catalyst for me to really think about the world differently. So I would say that's the first. Um, I think for newer people, any of Joel Greenblatt's kind of, you know, classics, you know, stuff like, you know, the magic formula, or the, I think it's called like the little book that works. Yeah, yeah, that's the one, yeah. I think it's also the one how you can be a stock market genius. I mean, some of the examples obviously by now quite old, but still, you know, very useful as a guy. So I think those were some of the things that really helped for the start. Again, trying to bridge that gap between doing things in practice, having a framework versus just you know, whatever you hear. I mean, in a way, this is a problem as well, going back a little bit to what we were saying before. There's just too much information on the internet as well. So how do you filter down, right? This is why ChatGPT might work really well if you have a question on accounting. But you ask ChatGPT a question now about finance, what well, is being trained on all those articles like, this is how you make a million bucks in the next 30 days, right? Here's the top 10 crypto strategies or whatever. This is some random seeking alpha article. So it's trained on that. So you ask him investing question, it just gives you gibberish, right? So in a way, Going back to experience and books and all these, you're trying to filter down the initial information you tr you train your own brain on, and then hopefully that that means it's improved um improved kind of outcome. So yeah, so any of the green black books are pretty good. I think obviously we mentioned capital returns. So again, that's obviously uh, edited by a chancellor from all the marathon letters. So again, extremely thoughtful and and useful practical book. So yeah, so that, there you go. That's three. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much. Tell the listeners where they can find you. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, Varian Perception, hopefully, you know, it's, it's a fairly memorable word, varianperception.com. If you want to get a sense of what our company does, we're, as I say, a full stack institutional service provider. So we provide research, we can provide tools and data, or, you know, advice on kind of um, investing or, you know, as well. So, listen, it was really great talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. You know, I'm really glad we could do this. Like I say, you know, we've been in touch for a while and, you know, big fan of the work you're doing, especially with a lot of the forensic accounting stuff. Big shout out to your Netflix uh, piece as well. So, yeah, I'm really glad we could do this. Thanks a lot. Tian is the youngest guest we've had in the podcast, but he is razor sharp, super smart and a keen student of economic and financial market history. He made the point that the generation born after 1990 are more in tune with data science and can take first principles, insights, and learnings and apply quantitative techniques to them. I agree that youth can be more effective today. Who couldn't after listening to Tian? I came away with a lot of food for thought and I hope you did too.